Okay, let's start the last session of the day with a crisp introduction by the author of the paper. Okay, I should start by thanking uh, the organizers for giving me this opportunity to present this paper, but actually to write it. And uh, Seth in his message said that I had, well, we had five minutes for apologies and for a brief presentation. So I should start for apologizing for all I've done wrong. And <laughs> and if Carl is right, I think we've, we've begun apologies now. So, um, so just a short presentation, uh, and I'll just give you two pieces of information. The first piece of information is uh, for those of you who don't like my conclusion, and the second piece of information is for those of you who think you don't like my conclusion, but actually do. So the first piece of information, that's just the structure of my argument. So if I'm right that the conclusion follows from the four premises, you know that if you don't like the conclusion, you should reject one of the premises of the argument. So for instance, you might uh, deny that uh, we, you might deny that it would actually be permissible for poor people to uh, wage war on us if we were, that is, rich people killing 18 million of them a year by uh, military means, or you might deny that we would be liable to military attack. <coughs> Second, uh, you might deny that uh, it follows if Parker's analysis of global poverty is right, uh, then we kill 18 million people per year uh, by imposing an unjust global structure on them. And I put this uh, slightly humorous remark in relation to this premise, I can read even what's not explicitly written. It doesn't explicitly write anywhere that we kill poor people in the third world, but I think I find it's hard to see how we could deny it, given what he writes about our imposing an unjust structure on them and thereby making them die. Third premise, progress analysis is correct. Uh, I'm going to assume this, so I won't defend this analysis. And fourth premise, there's no relevant, uh, morally relevant difference between our killing Pakistan 18 million poor people each year through military means and our doing so by imposing an unjust global structure on them. And that's actually a claim that I defend in the uh, paper. So this is what I argue. Uh, and this was, so here's a piece of information for those of, of you who might think you don't like my conclusion, but actually do. So three things I don't argue. I don't argue that the first and the third premises are correct. Uh, I shouldn't hide too much behind that because I actually think that the first premise of the argument is correct. But I don't offer you, if any one of you is a pacifist, I don't offer you any <coughs> arguments in this paper. I'm simply assuming that there is, there could be uh, a military confrontation between rich and poor countries in which rich <coughs> countries were killing 18 million poor people a year and then it would be permissible for poor people or poor countries to fight back. Or we, would, we would be liable to uh, attack by them. Uh, with regard to Parker's analysis of global poverty, I'm less certain that it is actually a correct analysis. So here's a very simple-minded thought. Uh, a lot of poor people in the world uh, live, or at least used to live in China and India. And it's true of neither China nor India that any of those mechanisms that Poppy points to, dictators, 
taking over from democratically uh, run governments in order to sell out the natural resources of the country, uh, that this can have been said to cause the poverty in those two countries. And given that's a large, given that a large proportion of the world's poor live in those two countries, I think that's at least an issue that he has to address. The reason I don't think it might be such a big problem for my argument is that even if we don't kill 18 million poor people a year, if we kill 9 million poor people a year, that's pretty uh, many people as well. So that's the first thing I don't argue. Um, so uh, the second thing I don't argue is that it is permissible for poor people to kill rich people under circumstances under which it would not be permissible to kill them in the comparable 18 million death a year as a result of military aggression scenario. So the argument I make here is uh, compatible with having implausibly strong views on civilian immunity. So if you think that even in war, very strong, civilians have very strong immunity to uh, military <coughs> attack, uh, then you can plug that into the argument and I would then be making the same claim with regard to the situation of um, killing uh, poor people in the poverty scenario. And uh, finally, uh, I don't claim that the fourth premise is strictly true. I do mention some ways in which uh, the way in which we harm uh, <coughs> poor people by violating their negative rights are different from the standard type of cases of violating people's negative rights in the pocket scenario uh, that might have more significance. The reason I'm not overly worried about this is that I think that even if we allow that there are various ways of violating people's negative rights, um, the difference is uh, the, the, the way in which pocket claims we violate uh, poor people's negative rights, uh, even though they are less morally problematic than paradigmatic cases of violating people's negative rights. I don't think the difference is so huge that it will rule out the possibility of just redistributing wars. So that's it. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm just going to start very briefly by summarizing what I think are Casper's two main claims. So the first claim is a conditional claim, and it says that if it is true that we contribute to bringing about the deaths of millions of poor people because we impose an unjust system, global um, institutional system on them, then we are liable to being attacked by them. And this means that it wouldn't be wrong for them to attack us. This particular claim about liability, again if I'm right in understanding the argument, is to be distinguished from a claim about an overall permissibility of a war of the poor against the rich. Because it might be that, given the particular circumstances in which this war would occur, the war would be impermissible because the criteria of proportionality and of non-futility might not be met. In this particular case, it's highly unlikely that if the poor were to attack the rich, the poor would actually succeed in, um, in winning this war and obtaining the just cause they're fighting for. So, on the one hand, Casper says, yes, if we are contributing to these terrible harms and deaths, we are liable to attack. It wouldn't be wrong for the poor to attack us. But on the other hand, it would be impermissible, all things considered, for the poor to attack us because the criterion, especially of uh, non-futility, wouldn't be met in, in, in all likelihood in this particular case. And Casper's argument overall relies on a moral distinction that many find plausible, others find implausible, that is the distinction between actions and omissions. 
And on his view, or at least on the view that he is canvassing in this particular paper, liability only makes sense if one actively contributes to bringing about a particular harm. And even though one might want to challenge this premise of the paper, I'm not going to um, discuss it in my comments and focus <coughs> on the two main claims that Casper makes, taking for granted the particular moral framework that he adopts. And I'm going to try and raise two challenges to the two main claims. So on the one hand, I'm going to suggest that even if it is true that we contribute in some way to bringing about these deaths. In fact, only very few amongst the rich people would be liable to attack. And the second thing that I want to say, and this is probably more provocative, and I'm, I'm not very happy with defending this claim that I'm just going to outline in a second, but it seems to me at least prima facie plausible. The second claim is, even if the rich are not involved, they're not causing the poor to die, and uh, so they're not liable. And even if, in all likelihood, the poor will not, would not succeed in waging war, it would still be permissible for them to do so. I realize this is a very extreme claim, but I want to try uh, an argument for this. So the first one, the question of liability for the rich. Now, Casper thinks that the conclusions he gets to in his paper are very polemical. Indeed, he thinks that one might even see them as a reductio of Pogger's argument. You consider this possibility, you don't think it is, but you see them as very polemical. And I have to say that when I first read the paper, I thought, yeah, of course, we, can, we kill these people by appropriating entitlements that are, that are not ours. Surely they have a right to enforce them and even kill us, you know, if, if that's what we're doing to them. And I think that, the, in a way, the simplicity of this moral picture is a bit artificial because of some of the um, simplifying assumptions that Casper makes in the paper. And I realize that these are assumptions, but I think that the paper and the conclusion becomes a lot less obvious and the paper more interesting if we relax some of these assumptions. And um, I have in mind two assumptions, sort of either explicitly or implicitly made. The first one is the suggestion that, in a way, there are the rich people and all of them are contributing, to, contributing somehow to the same extent or in the same way to causing the deaths of the poor. And presumably in the rich world, I'm assuming that rich people are sort of relatively well-off uh, inhabitants of Western states. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to exactly pinpoint, but it seems to be a reasonable approximation of who counts as rich people. But presumably, different rich people are differently involved in bringing about uh, these particular negative outcomes for the poor. So the president of a very wealthy country might be a lot more responsible than a shop assistant in Trenton, New Jersey. And this is the first claim, and the second, this is the first simplification that I think makes things a bit too easy for you. And the second one has to do with the distinction between actions and omissions. Now, I take it that the reason why actions um, have a particular moral weight is because of the involvement of the agency of the particular person who is acting in bringing about a certain outcome. But here again, I think we could have a more nuanced view of what kind of involvement of the agency we're talking about. There are, there are very, many different ways of acting and of having one's agency involved. And if we put together, on the one hand, the sort of empirical claim that the ways in which different rich people contribute to world poverty varies with the sort of normative claim about the um, the fact that the moral weight of certain actions tracks the degree of involvement of the agency of the particular act 
actor in bringing about a certain outcome. It seems to me that very few people in the rich world would um, sort of meet a threshold of involvement of the agency that might justify killing them. The shop assistant in Trenton and a lot of other people, this is a challenge to the view if, if we take this more nuanced approach. I wonder whether, to what extent, we could say that the rich people as a whole would be liable to attack, maybe a lot fewer than um, you suggest. So this is the first part of the comment about the question of liability for the rich. Uh, the second part of the comment... Just, sorry, just, yeah. to, just a clarifying question. Yeah. So, so acts and omission, how did that enter into the picture in relation to... So I took it that the reason why an action, the, the reason why bringing about a particular harm is morally worse, makes you liable to worse consequences than just failing to prevent it, is because your agency somehow is more involved in this particular. So the shop assistant in Trenton. It's probably the, 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 the level of involvement. If the idea is that you're all the more liable the more you contribute to a particular harm in the sense that your agency is more involved in it and considerations about um, intentionality but also other kinds of considerations about what the impact of what you're doing is on the overall outcome. And yeah. Thanks. Clear? Okay, yeah. good. So um, the second point about permissibility. And so Casper says, and I think prima facie plausibly, that um, you know, looking at criteria of use ad bellum, if we consider uh, proportionality and especially non-futility, all things considered, it shouldn't be permissible for the poor to attack the rich because they're just going to cause a great deal of harm and obtain very little themselves because they're probably going to fail. And the thought that I had in connection with this argument is whether it actually makes sense to apply such heavy moral burdens of pe on people who live in such extreme conditions. So we are the poor are in a situation that we might want to say is outside the so-called circumstances of justice. So their scarcity is not moderate, is absolute. And the only way they have to survive seems to be if you know, they've tried out persuasion, um, <coughs> you know, trying to convince the rich people, and so on and so forth. The only thing they can do, the one thing that is left to them, would be just to go and have a war, wage a war against them. And even though I realize that the futility criteria, non-futility criterion wouldn't be met, I just wonder whether it makes sense to place such a heavy burden on them. So even though, even in, in a situation in which, say, you have two societies, one is a rich society, the other one is a poor society, and the poor society is born not because the rich have done anything to it, but because of some kind of natural disaster. So in this particular case, I would imagine on, on the particular moral framework that you assume in this paper, the rich would have a duty to assist those in need, that is the poor, but the poor wouldn't have a strict right to assistance, so to speak. So if the, the rich didn't assist, they would be acting wrongly, but they wouldn't be wronging the poor in particular. And the poor, therefore, would not have a strict right to wage war against the rich because the rich wouldn't be liable, they haven't contributed. That would be the view. Even so, and even if the poor would be unlikely to win, it just seems very strange to me, very in a, in a way a bit inhuman, so to speak, to, to expect them not to wage war, to say that it is even impermissible to do that, given the particular circumstances in which they live. If they, they, they're just dying, maybe they're thinking, okay, it's highly unlikely, but maybe um, if we take such extreme measures, the rich might realize, or anyway, just, I just want to go kill them. Look, look at what they've done to me. 
I'm just wondering, so the, the, the thought underlying this, and I realize it's sort of provocative and maybe a little crazy, but I'm genuinely wondering whether, under conditions of absolute scarcity, it makes sense to hold people responsible to the same degree or to the same moral standards than we would under different conditions. So these are my thoughts. Well, we have plenty of time for discussion, but maybe we should stick to the newly established custom of the restrained finger. Uh, Henry was first. Okay, I, this first is just meant to be sort of a public interest announcement. Um, this paper, and, and at least one other paper, uh, cites David Luban's uh, 1980 Just War and Human Rights article. He wrote a later article in which he really significantly qualified those views, and no one ever seems to read that one. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't settle anything philosophically, of course. Maybe he was right the first time, but I just think it's an interesting article. Also, since I'm retired, I don't get to assign anyone any readings anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in a book called Global Justice and Transnational Politics, edited by Pablo de Grief and... Uh, somebody Cronin, and it's called Intervention in Civilization, Some Unhappy Lessons of the Kosovo War. So, uh, but now something slightly more substantive. Um, one, way, one place one might try to go with Laura's uh, second uh, crazy point would be, you know, we often get these examples in which we're told um, somebody's in absolutely catastrophic situation and so it counts as a supreme emergency and so they can you know slaughter lots of civilians or whatever and my response to those cases usually is to think be before we sort of authorize those people to you know slaughter all the civilians or whatever it is it might be some of the rest of us ought to do something you know like there are often kind of intervention cases where the, the only way that desperate people could win would be to nuke the other people, but of course we could just send in the 101st Airborne or whatever and, uh, and and do something slightly more restrained. And it seems to me you can do, one way you could go with, with Laura's last point is say, yeah, it really does look like, given how callous and totally uh, unconcerned we have shown ourselves to be, maybe they really wouldn't be unjustified in attacking us, from which we conclude not that they should attack us, but that we should we should do something. I mean, I mean, you don't. In a sense, I think this is sort of silly, because I mean, there's plenty of good reasons why we should be doing something anyway, but, it, but at least it seems kind of one more reason why maybe we should finally get serious, the reason being that we've left people in this situation in which they either, you know, die with no dignity or launch a totally futile and pointless attack, and those are the only options we've left them. So maybe we ought to think about giving them another option. Okay, could I just say, and also in response to Laura's uh, point, I, I think that this line of thought is some... More sympathetic. Sorry? I thought it was... Henry was saying was actually quite sympathetic to what you say that it's um, it wouldn't be wrong to attack them in the in the previous case where they contribute but it would be all things considered impermissible and I thought that what you were saying was uh, never mind yeah but as I would like to think of my argument it would be consistent with taking the view that you take it's, okay. it's simply not a view that it's a view that says that 
given that we uh, make poor people uh, as badly off as they are, then it is permissible for them to um, kill us if they, that was a way of, of preventing this unjust okay. structure. And we are liable to attack. But that is consistent with saying that uh, even if we don't make them uh, as badly off as, uh, as they are, even if they are just in this uh, conditions of, of absolute scarcity, mm -hmm. and we have nothing to do with that, it's mm -hmm. permissible for them to uh, attack us. Uh, th that would be, I take it, a more extreme view in a way than the one I've defended here, but I don't think that I say anything that uh, is inconsistent with that. You'd actually, I mentioned um, uh, in passing uh, this case of uh, the Holocaust, where one might say, um, suppose that people in the Warsaw Ghetto had, they knew that they wouldn't avoid being killed, but they at least fought with dignity, and it would seem that that might be permissible for them to do. And I think it's the same kind of so maybe it's just my misunderstanding, and if it was my misunderstanding, I apologize for it. But what I thought the thesis, and this came later in the paper, I think, was that um, under those particular assumptions, we would be liable, but because these two criteria of proportionality, and especially the non-fertility uh, criterion of uh, use ad bellum, would probably not be fulfilled. All things considered, mm. it wouldn't be permissible. And mm. in fact, at some point, you also have um, sort of imagine, imagine counterfactually that they could succeed. Would in that case be uh, wrong of them to attack us? No. So it's even if all things considered, it's not permissible. Yeah, it's okay. still worth making the point. Thanks. And so that's where I think the, yeah. the disagreement or it. suggestion or provocation, whatever lies. Justified finger? Yeah. <laughs> 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 just to follow up, I think I'm one of the, I'm Henry's remark, and the remark made a minute ago, I don't quite buy into this non-feasibility, non-proportionality uh, assumption. Uh, when I read the article, I have the same problem you did. I read, at first it seemed very convincing, and then you try to put a face on it. Let's think about India. India, there's 800 million people who earn less than $2 a day. India is a nuclear power. Now, in your scenario, seems that, how would this work out? First of all, it could certainly mount a feasible threat. It could be proportional if it was only a credible threat. In other words, they were using it as, as a credible threat to extort additional funds from the Western world, from, 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 from the United States. Why wouldn't that, would that fit into your scenario? On the other hand, it seems to me that if they were to do that, it would certainly all break down because it would be much worse off anyway. The United States would say, well, we're not going to invest here anymore. But it seems like you cut it both ways. I mean, you do have a, a feasibility, you do have proportionality. Whether it will work out in the real world or not, I'm not sure if they were going to would do it or not, but why would you necessarily assume that you're never going to be able to do this? Um, okay, I think I, it's not essential to my arguments whether it is actually possible or impossible for um, poor countries to uh, reform the unjust, the unjust global structure. Um, I'm simply a, uh, but 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 I, and I have to take into consideration different kinds of wars and mentioned that and some comments recently that I would also have to take into account asymmetric wars, um, and also if it is really that inexpensive for rich countries to eliminate global poverty, 
uh, it might be much cheaper for us to just pay the money that are needed rather than to uh, fight wars uh, against uh, poor countries. But I would say if it is possible for India to pose a credible threat and in that way eliminate the unjust global structure, and if the unjust global structure has the kind of nature that it has according to Hoki, um, well, then I think mm -hmm. it would be permissible for India to pose that threat to us, and we would be liable to uh, having that threat be put to us. Jeff? Thanks. I want to say something briefly in support of Laura's first point and something else brief uh, in second. In support of the first point, and it can't be made so it's not to confess everything, so forgive me if this is just redundant. But it seems to me that one thing to say about an idea that responsibility for what you refer to here as global structures um, underlies the idea that which are actually not just allowing poor people to die, they're actually killing them. I would want to suggest that whatever global structures there are, are not things that people who exist now can be very much responsible for being there. It's global structures, whatever they are, are, are structures that have evolved over many generations. Uh, of people. There's nobody who decided at any given time, let's set up the world in this way. You know, the, the politics, the economics, and so on. It has evolved to, to be what it is. And there's never been a time when we could, where any of us could together say, well, wait a minute, this is unjust. Let's stop doing it this way right now and, and, and change it today. Let's completely reorganize the world economy and the world politics and everything. Let's just get this over with once and for all. It's just not a possibility, even for the very rich, to do anything like this. So, uh, you know, any kind of change in what, what, what's being called global structures here has to be piecemeal. Just necessarily, and a lot of people are trying to do this, and you might want to rewrite the argument uh, claiming that those people who are resisting the reform of international institutions or something like that or whatever uh, would be liable. But it's, it, it's hard to see how anybody now can be held to be responsible for the nature of global institutions. Um, secondly, um, I've worried about the kind of coherence of Laura's second point because you were mixing, I think, two things together. You were saying, first of all, that um, their action would be futile. But, and you were saying that we would be somehow burdening them to prevent them from engaging in this action. But I don't think we'd be really burdening them if the action were actually futile. That is, if they weren't going to get that or anything as a result of this, no, no good for them was going to come of it, then it wouldn't be adding to their burden just to say, no, you can't, you can't do this. So, and, and lastly, it just seemed to me that even if we thought that was somehow um, understandable why they would want to do this, as you said, you know, look at what they've done to me or something like that, that, that phrase itself ex suggests that what they have exactly. in engaging in this is just an excuse rather than a, than a permission or a justification. Okay. We would say, yes, they, you know, they, they've 
made war on these rich people without any real hope of success or whatever. Um, and we can see that, that they were excused to do that. It's not true that it, it really is futile to be justified. Now, Danny has an excellent paper in which he makes the claim um, that, it, that it could be justified, but it's appealing to goods other than the, the success in the original sense. So, in response to the first part, point about the global structure not being something that anyone is responsible for, I guess that would be taking issue with Pocket's analysis uh, rather than taking issue with my argument. I'm assuming that Pocket's argument is his analysis of global poverty is correct, and he's saying things like uh, rich states impose. Um, uh, the gro unjust global structure on poor countries and people living in rich countries who vote for the parties and the governments that impose this unjust structure on poor people are complicit in this uh, crime against humanity that Kobe thinks that uh, is being uh, committed. So, so I, s I would suspect that that your point is more directed against Kobe's analysis than against my argument. Uh, but setting that aside. So consider a case in which we have this club of rich nations and they, <coughs> people in different rich countries uh, vote for governments and these governments meet at various points and make decisions, say make decisions about whether or not to attack poor countries. Uh, and uh, it so happens that they decide to wage war against poor countries, killing 18 million poor people a year. Uh, I suppose that many would say that uh, in this kind of case, uh, people who live in rich countries uh, and have voted for governments that took part in making the decision to wage war bear sufficient responsibility for uh, what's happening to poor countries such that they cannot complain when they are being killed uh, in defensive wars by uh, poor countries. And, I'm s I, and I simply want to say that if we imagine an analogous scenario with regard to global poverty where the individual responsibility of a citizen in, in a rich country is, is uh, tiny uh, because it's no real, it wouldn't have made any real difference if any rich person had voted for a different party or something like that. If we think that in the military scenario, people are liable to being harmed in a defensive war by poor countries, it's hard to see why we shouldn't say the same about the poverty scenario, <coughs> provided that focus analysis of the, the nature of global poverty is correct. Just a moment, brief Very brief. We have okay. a huge list. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, it's just that. Um, I think you're, you're, you're gesturing towards the, the, the difference between killing and letting die here. I mean, the, 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 the very fact that nobody, including the poor themselves, sees what's happening as exactly like our going over there and killing them um, points to the weakness in the argument that what you and Thomas are describing really is much more like letting people die. And anybody could tell the difference between the functioning of global institutions as we have it today and are picking up our machine guns and going over there and mowing them down. Um, I, I do think it's telling that 
the, the victims themselves don't think of themselves as being killed by us. I think that's telling too, but uh, uh, but I also think that some of the examples you mentioned say like there are these medicines they could be produced very in very cheap ways. Um, we sue companies that produce these very cheap medicines, and as a that's, result, that's a case of preventing people from saving. Not a case uh, of I don't want to interrupt, but the list is really long, I'm and sorry. also the finger rule is suspended for now. <laughs> Helen is next. <laughs> That's a that's a criticism I accept in the sense that I don't think I've addressed this uh, uh, in the way I should in the paper. So that's something I need to work on. Uh, but um, thinking about it, so 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 there's a difference between the poverty scenario and the uh, military aggression scenario. <coughs> if the poverty scenario works in the way that by recognizing dictators in countries as having ownership over natural resources in the country and thereby giving incentives to uh, generals to take over power from democratically elected governments. There's the intervening agency of, of uh, government. So to establish an equivalence to the military scenario case, we should imagine a case where rich countries give incentives for dictators to wage war against their own people by military means or something like that. That would establish some kind of symmetry between the two cases I want to compare because they would then both involve intervening agency. Uh, and the claim I would then have to argue for would be that it would also be permissible for poor people suffering from dictators waging war against their own people to um, attack rich countries is if that was a way of removing this incentive for uh, generals to take over power. I assume that if the numbers are right, if the numbers are big, that could be permissible. Okay. <laughs> um, I think the discussions about causal chains and individual agency, I think my mind are very unrealistic and really highlight some of the points that was making in his paper about the inadequacy of an individual's approach to these questions. So I think so Scott Veach's uh, book on moral irresponsibility, which shows fairly plausibly using fairly standard Weberian analysis, that one significant function of a legal rational of a system of legal rational authority is to, to, to sort of displace responsibility and to sort of create structures where responsibility can't be pinned down to individuals. 
And it just seems very bizarre that participants in that sort of structure can escape sort of moral burdens of harms those structures utterly foreseeably and deliberately induce by hiding behind the shelter of the very structures that they've created to achieve that result. I mean, I mean, so it's one thing to say in a domestic court perhaps shareholders aren't responsible for the crimes of the company in which they own shares. That's a positive legal question. But to think that settles the moral issue, just, I mean, you don't have to be Marxist, right, to think that that's just utterly bizarre. If I say it's completely standard barbarian analysis, we'll get you the same treatment. This is the same consequence. So I'm much more sympathetic to Poggy for that sort of reason, and I just find some of those objections really extremely unrealistic and absurd. Um, on the on the, the challenge, I think I'm very sympathetic to it. In fact, you write a doctoral thesis defending it. I think you have to do it in a, in a Hobbesian framework, is how you do it. Not a Lockean framework might get you there, but a Hobbesian more of all against all will get you to something like that. And I think that then had the resources perhaps to deal with the potential India objection, because if it really is a war of all against all and all sovereigns are dissolved, then the Indian government's special standing to kind of act as an agent and use its nuclear weapons falls away. So you might build on that idea to try to sort of dissolve that, that if that's meant to be an objection, you might try to dissolve it in a Hobbesian analysis, also still preserving the permissibility of a Hobbesian levee on mass or something of that sort. I mean, I haven't worked out the details, but I think it, I mean, it's not as I don't think. But, but Hobbes is the framework, not, you won't get it out of the block. So that gives me more thoughts than questions. Uh, okay, so, so I'm not sure I got the second uh, thought, uh, but with regards to the first one, uh, I, I totally agree, and I would be crazy not to admit that some of these scenarios I imagine are very unrealistic, and I suppose that there's a general issue about, a general methodological issue here that, uh, where we might take different views about how one identifies basic principles of uh, morality of war. Uh, but thinking about it and not uh, trying to set aside these methodological issues, do these weird scenarios, do they tell us anything about uh, the morality of war? I'm wondering if in this kind of cases the complexity of causal chains uh, is such a big deal. I mean, it might be a big deal if you think that it's very important whether we are talking about the death of uh, identified people or non-identified people. So, I think so, so, so if we're talking about, if we know for sure that if we continue with this unjust global structure, 18 million people a year will die. With, with the complex, uh, the, the causal chains leading to the death of these 18 million people are extremely complex and um, we can't say much about, we can't predict who will die from poverty and uh, the, the course of change leading from the unjust uh, global structure to the death of any individual poor person are uh, something that we don't really are able to char charter. I think that does that matter so much given that if we know that something like 18 million people a year uh, will die? No, well, so we're in complete agreement. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, to Helen's right in the last row. Yes, um, I would like to support Jeff. Uh, I, I don't think that I uh, impose uh, unjust global order upon the poor. Um, uh, I, I find it uh, always very silly if Thomas Bober just does this step in, in a, in a subclause, saying our governments and then, and hence we, 
impose an unjust global order. I think that would uh, need significant uh, argument. If uh, Thomas argues that by going into a supermarket and buying something or paying taxes, I'm killing people, that seems rather strange, uh, rather strange thing to say. But if that is true, if participating in the global economical order is, you know, participating in this largest crime against humanity ever committed, then you can also kill people working in a sweatshop because they are participating in the same way. So the poor would be liable to attack too. Um, the second uh, point is it seems to me that the whole uh, account of liability behind your argument, but maybe Paul's argument, is, um, is mistaken. It is not true that we become liable to attack only because we causally contribute to an unjust harm. For example, if some guy um, uh, crushes uh, the skull of another person unjustly with a copy of my thick Habermas book, then I have causally contributed to an unjust harm, but I've not become liable to attack, neither have I become liable to compensation. And uh, the third point is one. Sorry, just before you go to yeah. the third, could, could you just give me the case once more? I'm sorry, I was. Well, you know, I published a thick book on Habermas. It's thick enough to kill a person by, you know, putting it on a person's head. And this doesn't. I causally contributed, therefore, to a person's death in case somebody decides to kill somebody with my Habermas book. Not knowing that, that would be an outcome of. Do I know that it is an outcome of, uh, first of all, I don't know, and Robert doesn't know, that an outcome of my buying salad in a supermarket will kill somebody in the third world. Um, especially not if, on the other hand, he says that terrorists and trades actually block, you know, food coming into our country and therefore people die somewhere else. So you have to make up your mind. Is it bad for me to buy food or is it not bad for me to buy food? But anyway, uh, there is a count of liability that is implausible. Uh, and the third point connected to this is um, if, if in reality imposing upon someone an unjust global order makes you liable to attack, then you have to see the following. Uh, for example, if Star Trek comes along and they beam me up and then we beam me into an unjust prison where I'm treated like scum, then of course those people uh, who beamed me up and down have imposed upon me an unjust global order. Another way you can impose an unjust global order upon a person is to, um, to bear a child, if that is proper English, or to give birth to a child in the third world. So all, all mothers in the third world who are getting children who then are starving uh, are liable to attack because they impose an unjust global order on these children. And this seems to me a bit of the absurdity of the whole argument. Um, <laughs> actually, I have a footnote in the paper. <laughs> 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 About childbearing? <laughs> and uh, so suppose that if we didn't impose an unjust world order, uh, then uh, uh, the people who are poor and in the world today, they would be better off, but instead there would live lots of other people who would be, uh, well, pretty poorly off as well, but still live lives that were worth living out. I think that in that kind of case, uh, it becomes less clear that we, that the, the poor who, who's actually living uh, now have a complaint about the uh, unjust global structure. But I, I guess that's a, a different issue. With regards to your first point, I'm not so certain about this 
this issue about so our governments, uh, the, the governments of the most powerful countries in the world, and it's probably not just the United States and England and France and Germany any longer. There are other states that should be mentioned here. There is a sense in which they uh, are in a position to uh, have a greater influence on whatever global structure uh, we live under than uh, countries like uh, uh, Zimbabwe or, or whatever. Uh, and also imagine that um, imagine that a country is engaged in in uh, genocide, um, and people will not uh, be prosecuted in, in in any way if they refuse to pay taxes. And uh, I think in, in in that situation, if if I say I don't want to pay taxes because I don't want to be contributing to the genocide that my government uh, is conducting. And if I did that, if I paid my taxes despite the fact that um, I wouldn't suffer any sanctions uh, if I didn't, uh, then it doesn't seem odd to say, well, I bear some responsibility for uh, the genocide that my government is conducting. Now, the fact is, of course, that people will actually suffer penalties if they don't pay their taxes. Uh, but that might just show that they're excused for, well, it is, if, if the punishment is severe enough, that they're excused for uh, being partly responsible for what their government does. And I don't think it shows that they're not responsible at all. And also, I think we, sh we should compare this to a case of military aggression. And I'm assuming that there could be cases where in which a government uh, starts military aggression against another country, and then civilians in that country are liable to be harmed, say, as a byproduct of attacking combatants of that uh, unjust aggressing country. And if we say in that case that these civilians, they are liable to be killed as a byproduct of military aggression, then I don't see how we can... Uh, deny that this is also the case in which a state imposes an unjust economic structure leading to the death of, of uh, lots of other people. Okay, sorry, there's no right of reply because we have like a really long list and hardly any shot to get through it. Guys, next. Thanks. Um, sorry. So when we go to war, uh, there are several groups of people who may be liable to be killed, some of them to a greater extent and some of them to a lesser extent some of them to no extent at all, and hence they are not liable to be killed. Uh, there are the state government, leaders, politicians, and so on. I think they are very, very much liable, right, the unjust side. Uh, and they are the first group that ought to be eliminated if we ought to do it group by group. Okay? At the bottom of the list, you'll have the babies, they're completely the, the uh, imbeciles, the ones who are unable to make up choices, and so on. Uh, somewhere in between, you'll have civilians who are less involved, and will go up and up, and taxpayers, somewhere close to the top of the list, not at the top of the list, but close to the top of the list, will be the soldiers, who are actually the ones who carry out the killing, and do things, and take arms, and shoot people unjustly. <coughs> uh, they are the ones who will be killed in this war. Now, in your example, there's also a list of more and less culpable people. 
the more culpable people are, the, again, the politicians, the governments, and so on, next, international lawyers, uh, uh, lobbying groups, and so on, Swiss bankers, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, at the bottom of the list, there will be, again, the infants, the imbeciles, and so on. Near the bottom of the list, you'll have the low classes, which most armies are constituted of. And they're the group which will be killed in this war. It's not the bankers. So that seems to be like a pretty good reason in, to, in normal warfare to kill the soldiers, whereas in economic killing, uh, not to kill the soldiers. They're not the ones doing the killing. Sorry. Go for the bankers. Buy the bullet. Buy the bullet. Yeah, I buy the bullet. No, I mean... But, but, but now, th now this trivializes your argument, because if you are going to say, well, we should really kill the bankers, then I, I don't see what really the argument is. The assumption is that the bankers kill a lot of people. These people make, through economic means, these people may kill the bankers who kill them in self-defense. Yeah, I agree. Okay. No. So look, here's what I'm saying. So <laughs> suppose we have two countries, Denmark and Norway. Uh, and in the first scenario, Denmark uh, wages war against Norway, killing a lot of Norwegians. Uh, and uh, a lot of Danish people vote for the government that pursues these aggressive policies. And uh, I'm assuming that, uh, given the kind of responsibility they have for the action of the country, uh, they are liable to be killed in a defensive war by Norwegian troops. Um, they so, being the soldiers or they being the Well, thing? soldiers and civilians. It might, be the, it, it might be the case that there's some kind of civilian immunity at stake such that uh, Danish civilians cannot be targeted directly by Norwegian troops, but they can be killed as a side effect of targeting uh, Danish combatants. So I'm saying that that's the point of departure. Here's a case where Danish civilians are liable to be killed in that way. So change the example. So now Denmark imposes an unjust economic structure on Norway, and lots of Norwegians die as a result of poverty. Uh, and they do it by, say, giving incentives for Norwegian generals to take power, uh, and by making medicine that is needed uh, very expensive, such that most Norwegians won't be able to buy it, etc. Then I'm saying that if you think that in the military scenario, assuming that we're talking about the same number of <coughs> civilian deaths, etc., um, you think that Danish civilians are liable to be killed. The same would be the case in in the the, the unjust uh, economic structure uh, scenario. So I'm not just making a trivial claim about killing bankers. I'm saying that uh, if if you think that in the military scenario there's some kind of liability to be killed on part of civilians who are responsible for the actions of their government, uh, then the same is the case in the yeah. end. Okay. Last row, left to Helen. Yeah. Um, OK, let's try and concretize things a bit. Um, so Pope, in a, in a piece in 2005 in Ethics International Affairs, says that one way in which people can contribute to the upholding unjust order is through failing to take steps that would mean uh, weak national economies were protected against what he calls exogenous shocks from outside their national economies, sort of global financial crises and those kinds of things. And a failure to design a system that prevents economies from suffering those shocks 
Tokenomics is one way in which we contribute to global poverty. Now, my real question is how much hands on the numbers here? So we have 18 million people. Um, I think you find that it doesn't matter whether we kill them through military means or, or through inaction. But if I have one person and I kill them, I take it that yields by my back kill, and that yields a just cause on their part to, to kill me. Yeah? Is your claim the same with regard to this measure that Poga says produces world poverty? So if I'm, about, if I'm a banker and I'm about to institute a global financial system that fails to protect your economy adequately against an exogenous shock, is your position that if one person will be killed by that, then there's a just cause to kill the banker? Or is your position that instead the numbers stop factoring in? And so once we start killing, I don't know what kind of figure you want to put on it, but a million people would result from that failure to, to allow things on the shop, then that would be the kind of thing that would, that would yield a just cause for war. So is your just cause for war number sensitive on this account? Um, and is it number sensitive in a way that you can trade off seriousness of the shortfall in your duty against the number of people killed as a result? So if I fulfill 95% of my duties as a banker to make sure that we're not vulnerable to exogenous shocks, but I just don't check things quite thoroughly enough, and I fall short that 5%. If the result of that is, I don't know, 36 or you know, other numbers as you want, is, is your, does your account of just cause, I mean, not, not of just, just war in the round, just cause, is it sensitive to both numbers and small variations in the degree of harm? Okay, so how much... So very, we have no, no time, basically, but, you know, you can answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just well, the questions have to be really in more Basically, formulated. no time. Um, uh, I think you're making two points. Uh, I, the one is about... Uh, the, the one is about uh, uh, yeah, yeah. failing to implement a system that cushions uh, economies against uh, external shocks or something like that. I, I think here there is an issue about doing and allowing. So it seems we are more here we are more talk we are more likely to be talking about allowing harm rather than doing harm. Uh, and I have a, a short discussion of that particular mechanism in, uh, in uh, the paper. With regard to sensitivity to numbers, uh, I think that the argument I make is neutral on this issue. So I think for all I'm saying in this paper I could go either way as a matter of fact, I would want an account of liability to uh, being killed in self-defense that is uh, well, yeah, sensitive to numbers. But I, I think it's, it's, it's not something that I commit myself to have any view about in, in the paper. Well, it's too difficult for people who are dying of starvation to defend themselves. I don't know why you wanted to make the hurdles so high for them. So um, one way in which you make them high is you imply that the act of missions distinction is really important in justifying their permission to harm people. But that didn't seem to be so obviously true. So um, if Andrew fails to rescue me from a pond um, when he could do it just at the cost of his suit, he refuses to do it, now I could kill him, and he would fall into the pond and I could drag myself out. Well, he's violated his duty. He could have easily rescued me just at the cost of his suit, so now I can shoot him and pull myself out, right? So he could be liable to be killed even if it's just an omission, right? It's a failure. So I thought that was one way in which you made it just too demanding, I thought. 
And then the other way was you implied that um, it's only permissible to kill people um, when they're liable to be killed. I think you mean intentionally, but that's not right, right? So there could be people who are non-liable who you can still intentionally kill. So in my blocker example earlier, they seem like cases where a person is not liable to be killed, but the person who freezes on the road <coughs> and then you, you, you pull them off so that everyone else can escape. So if people prevent me from setting up just institutions, which will save all these lives, they're just preventing me from, from doing what I have good reason to do to save all these lives. I try and set up these just institutions and all these powerful people get in my way, they kill them, right, to stop them <laughs> setting up these just institutions so that I can go and save all these, all these lives. They may, may not be liable to be killed, but that doesn't matter. Right? Liability matters only when it comes to harming people as a means to an end. It doesn't matter necessarily when it comes to all intentional killing. Um, okay, yeah, two points. It, it happens all the time. You say something that you think is fairly radical, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody comes along and says something that is extreme. <laughs> But I, I think uh, I, I'm not uh, I'm not denying in in this paper that it would be permissible for uh, poor countries to kill us in a redistributive war, even if it were just a case that we simply failed our duty to assist them. I'm, I'm simply not taking any stand on that. I'm simply going along for the sake of argument with ascribing more significance to uh, doing and allowing. Um, uh, I agree they are morally significant, just not in that way. Uh, well, but I, I don't really take any stand on in what way it is significant. I'm just saying, assuming that Poke is right, uh, we do harm uh, Uh, people in the third world uh, by making them poor in a way that kills a lot of them and what can they then permissibly do to us or what, what are we liable to what kind of defensive actions are we liable to on that part um, so I, I don't think I really need to disagree with anything no, no, no. Oh, okay. the premise is, the premise is implied this, this means restrictions on Okay. And I didn't want to say the other thing as well, that uh, it's only if you're liable to be killed that you can morally permissibly be killed. And I'm not quite sure why you think that I say something else in the paper. I thought that you thought that it was liability that grounds the permission to kill you. Well, it's one of the things that ground permissibility to to kill you. Yeah. Okay. Gentlemen back, yeah. Oh. Behind you, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from Frankfurt. I have a question on this futility point or the proportionality. I mean, Laura uh, posited in a way uh, which surprised me a bit. You said that kind of if we do not wrong the poor, that the poor kind of are, from understandable reasons, they attack us, that somehow one couldn't have anything to say. But I thought the other point is if we wrong them and they have no chance of success, um, are they allowed to attack us? But then still on page 20, I have certain problem because in a way you say that even if you do not wrong them because they are liable to attack, it might still not be permissible for the for the poor to you know to, to attack the rich people who were wronging them in the first place. And you explain that by that you say uh, with reference to Mac, Ms., uh, Jeff McMahon that a war may be just even if it's not morally justified. But I thought within war Um, that the problem is always the side effects, collateral damage. You always kill innocents by doing um, a war. But when you 
I mean, your example of the Holocaust kind of clarified it. If I'm attacked by 10 um, persons, they want to kill me just because, I've, for the fun of it. And I have the choice of defending myself, and I know I won't be successful. Without, yeah, let's <coughs> say I won't be successful. If they are still liable, and I wouldn't wrong them if I would kill them. I mean, just perhaps to defend my dignity, whatever. How can it not be permissible? It seems to me that you know, now you do it because the consequences would be bad. So let's say 20 lives would be, um, would be missing afterwards, or they, they would be killed. That, that you kind of combine the ontological reasons with consequentialist reasons, but not really combine them, but it's two paradigms in a way. Either I say I can kill them because I do not wrong them, so I do not act impermissibly. It might just be the case, it would be super arrogatory if I would say, okay, I save myself, I, I, you know, I sacrifice myself, perhaps they had a bad childhood, so, um, and they are really mean and they had a bad experience, so I won't kill them, they, they have families and so on and so on. But if I would kill them, I wouldn't do anything wrong. So it is permissible, I would think. There might be other reasons, but not the question of permissibility. If you have a consequentialist paradigm, you say it's not permissible because it's 10 lives against one, even if I discount for the culpability. So, but you seem to combine them. I don't know how it exactly works. OK, uh, here's something quite general. Uh, it might not specifically address the point you're making. but. Uh, what I really want to say uh, to make my argument is simply that uh, the fact that if poor countries attack rich countries, uh, lots of bad things are going to happen, in, mostly in, in poor countries. Uh, I'm suggesting that this works differently in relation to moral permissibility than it does from uh, what it does in relation to moral liability to harm. So I'm suggesting that it would be kind of artful so if we assume an interpersonal setting, it would be kind of art for rich people to say, uh, we're not liable to be harmed by you because if you try to undo the unjust structure that we've imposed on you, uh, we will uh, bum you to hell. That, that doesn't seem to be a good argument for why rich people are not liable to be attacked by uh, poor people. But it seems to be, well, from my perspective, uh, <coughs> a good argument for why it might be morally impermissible for poor people to uh, attack rich people. So, so that's the kind of distinction I, I want to make um, and precisely where the threshold in terms of bad consequences uh, lies for when it would be impermissible for you to defend yourself uh, is an issue that I don't think I really need to address here. Professor? Yeah, um a couple of kind of points just on the criteria that you, you have. Um, you dismiss last resort very quickly, and I think it's kind of favourable to the difference between doing and allowing. I think a plausible case for, can be made for the importance of the last resort principle in terms of doing and allowing. Uh, John Lango's got a paper where he kind of does something really along those lines. Um, secondly, on legitimate authority, I would have thought that for, any, for it to be just, for any uh, to be able to go to war for for the redistributive reasons, the state that's actually going to go to war would need to be legitimate. So uh, a, a, the totalitarian state that's going to go to war for redistributive reasons that ends up, uh, meets all the rest of the Adbenham criteria, but then just decides to kind of pocket the money itself would, would fail uh, the criteria. So that's a couple of, kind of smaller, uh, smaller points. Kind of third point kind of follows on from what um, Uwe said was that um, 
I mean, I also worry that this is going to be going to be massively expansive. So uh, it's not just the rich that impose the unjust global order on the poor; it's also the poor. <laughs> so I'm thinking here about the security dilemma in IR. So the idea is that, that the security dilemma. So for those of you that don't know, is the idea is that states are in this kind of uh, anarchical system where they're against each other and constantly, there's a constant threat that you're going to be attacked by another state. Um, this means that there's an arms race, so states have to continually arm themselves and invest more and more money into arms. Now if this is the case and you're spending more money on arms, then um, you're not going to be able to spend so much on health or, or so much on tackling global poverty. <coughs> so you might think, for instance, that India and Pakistan, um, on your account, would have some sort of just cause for attacking each other because they're having, they have to maintain nuclear weapons to be able to deter attack from each other uh, rather than spending on attacking global poverty. So I do, wa I, I do worry that um, if you kind of, it's going to lead to an, just a far too permissive international system. So um, an international system where virtually any state, poor or rich, has got a just cause to wage war against another because they're kind of maintaining each other, maintaining every state in this kind of security, in this security dilemma. Uh, the, the kind of situation, so this is your last point, so the kind of situation I'm addressing is one in which one party asymmetrically imposes an unjust structure on another party. The India-Pakistan scenario you're describing is one in which two parties kind of cooperate in imposing an, a harmful structure on, on each other. So I'm not really certain that the view I have about this asymmetrical situation commits me to any view about the symmetrical situation in which there's this arms race going on between uh, two countries. Uh, I guess I would suppose that I would say that it would be uh, just for poor people living in Pakistan and India to violently uh, uh, remove their governments uh, if that was a way of uh, making sure that economic means were uh, used to fight poverty rather than um, buy weapons or something like that. Um, with regard to legitimate uh, authority, uh, I mentioned uh, uh, there might be situations in, in which legitimate authority is a condition of uh, being able to fight a just war, but I think that it's also pretty clear that there are situations in which legitimate authority is not necessary in order to fight a just war. So uh, the Soviet Union uh, in the Second World War, the government wasn't uh, legitimate, but it was <coughs> fighting a just war when it fought the, uh, the, the, the Nazis. Uh, so uh, I think it can't be the case that it's always it's, that it's a necessary condition, whatever the circumstances, uh, for fighting just wars. Okay. University. I have a question to Laura in two parts. Uh, you mentioned uh, the duty to, to help without having any rights on the other side. So we have a duty to help them but they do not have a right to be helped. Uh, <coughs> or you may make that song, yeah? rescue. Mm -hmm. uh, this, obviously, content scheme seems to be very interesting, and uh, it, uh, it could uh, change some of those schemes of permissibility that we are talking here about, excluding some, something that we 
take as permissible, but according to this scheme, wouldn't be. The second part uh, uh, of the question is, uh, they do, do not have the right to be helped, but they still expect to, to be helped. So what's the status, moral or whichever, of that expectation that they may have? Okay, so um, on the first um, point, I took it that the particular moral analysis of the two society scenario, one is poor because of a natural catastrophe or something, and so the other rich society has nothing to do with it, causally speaking. Um, I, I took it to be one that would follow from the premises of Caspar's argument, so I, I don't think that it, it would in some way change. Well, you mentioned it, it in passing, uh, enumerating various features. Obviously, there is a possibility that you, uh, you have some, sometimes a duty to help uh, without any clear reason for the other party to have a right to be helped. Uh, if there is a right to be helped, I would be forced to do that. So I, I took it that, the, that on the view, and maybe that Casper was proposing, something like a right would only arise in cases of contribution where you sort of positively bring about the harm. That's the case I discussed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, the, I mean, if you think that what I suggested in some way um, involved a different overall moral framework than the one that Casper proposed, I don't think that that's the case. I mean, the reason why I chose that particular example is precisely because I thought it was in line with his um, emphasis on the distinction between actions and omissions. About the expectations of the poor, I'm not sure what the um, moral status of those expectations is. Um, I cannot say that they are the same types of expectations and the expectations, uh, assuming this moral framework, as the expectations of those uh, whose rights are being violated in case uh, in which some people are holding on to resources that actually belong to them. But so I'm sorry. But you I'm not, sorry, no right of reply. We have to go down the list. I'm sorry. It's accepted. Oh, thanks. Um, <coughs> No right of reply, so I have to. Wrong incentive. So I, I really like uh, Laura's first point. It seems to me that the simplifying, simplifying um, assumption that there are we is is suspicious. And I want think about Oxford College system. I tr I ask people. I I ask people. How, how is it organized? They tell me, we don't know. <laughs> we don't understand it. Uh, is it efficient? It's, it's the total opposite of, of efficiency. So why, it's, why is it in, isn't it changed? No one can, it's impossible to change it. And, and they, they with very seriously say it's impossible to change it. Now, it's obvious that there are many people that contribute to this structure. <laughs> Positively, they are agent of this structure, and still I wouldn't help, uh, hold them responsible because they can change. It. They can change it now. It's, it's, it happens also with the global structure. So there is a race to the bottom in in terms of taxes. Now, a leader lower the tax tax rates, and he tells you, "Look, I don't have I don't have choice because if I won't do that, 
then either my competitor, the, 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 the opposition will do it, will, will throw me out of power and will do the same, or another state will do it. So we have a problem. We causally contribute to the uh, unjust global structure, and still we cannot, have, we cannot prevent it because problems of, of coordination. So even if I buy, I, it seems to me that this might be something that Poggi did not, it's not Poggi's fault, but your analysis fault. Namely, he might be totally right in saying we impose. We impose this, but no one of us can can change the situation because of problems of coordination, and that's why, even if there is active causal contribution which involves agency, this does not imply just cause for. So, so the idea is that we, rich countries, impose an unjust structure on poor countries, but they are not. But they, they cannot, is, they is cannot avoid doing it because they don't know how. To, to they cannot collaborate because of because because they cannot collaborate. There is so many well, so many cases of that. Yeah, I think it, it makes a difference whether you're saying even in Oxford, they cannot collaborate in order to change the the system, which everyone agrees that it is that it is inefficient. But I think here it makes a difference whether they're saying we know what we should do, but we can't cooperate in, in doing it because they all refrain from doing what would be needed for them to cooperate. And the case where they say, well, we all have the best of wills, but the fact is that we don't know what we should do in order to avoid... We don't know uh, what uh, we should do in... in, for, in and I guess the, the Oxford scenario, <laughs> that, that might be the, the, the latter case. Uh, the former case, I think, is not enough to get rich countries off the, the, the hook. Uh, so it would be like 20 hired killers each cooperating about killing someone, and then uh, you say, look, why are you killing this guy? And they say, well, we could refrain from killing this guy, but that would require cooperation between us. We don't do it, so <laughs> no one is to blame. Uh, but I think Parker, he actually makes some... Uh, well, again, remember, I'm saying, assuming that Poggi is right, I'm not saying that his analysis is right, but I'm assuming for the sake of argument that it is right. But I think at this point he would point to some... Uh, proposals you have, like this $3 tax on each barrel of oil being traded, or this uh, incentive fund for developing medicines uh, to address diseases that are primarily that primarily strike in, in among poor people. I think you have some proposals as to how we undo some of these bad effects of the global structure according to this analysis, where we can't just plausibly say, uh, we don't know what to do. Uh, Gentlemen in the back. Yeah, you? Sure. Um, so my question was, was to Laura earlier. Um, it was uh, about, it, and you may have to remind me uh, what, what exactly you said in your The point, I guess, was that um, by virtue of sort of the bare fact of uh, extreme duress or, um, or absolute uh, scarcity for poor people, we can kind of replace them with the moral uh, structures that we hold for people who are under those conditions. Was that just Yeah, that was one of the intuitions behind it, yeah. Um, I just wanted to maybe critique that briefly, um, in that I, I think that one of the reasons that we have uh, moral theories is just a simple point. Um, 
is not just to say like under what conditions are people uh, liable to be attacked, for example. It's not just like because they did X, they can be attacked, but it's because they did X. Um, it seems as though like if we release people from this kind of moral structure, uh, it leaves open the question uh, who they can, who they could, you know, attack, right? Uh, so I guess maybe more specifically, um, if if we release them, yeah, from from this this consideration that you know the West or rich countries have, uh, have created this, uh, this uh, unjust system for them, um, then, then it leaves open, like, who, we can't specify who they can, you know, legitimately attack, just by virtue of their having absolute safety scarcity. Yeah, you should respond. Yeah, absolutely. Super quickly. So, um, good point, and, I mean, I won't have time in the comments, but I, I want to say also something later on to Jeff in, in response to what he was saying, because I think it, it hit on some um, important issues. Um, I do see that as being a problematic implication of the thought, but on the other hand, so I, I haven't reached reflective equilibrium on, on this, it's just an intuition, another couple of thoughts, I still have to balance them properly, but, um, <laughs> but the thing is, on the other hand, we, so what you're suggesting is we would be in some sort of Hobbesian kind of state of nature, and that was the situation. And I'm wondering whether, well, maybe under those conditions, if they are in such a situation of extreme scarcity, maybe that's the way we should, I mean, uh, part of me thinks that that's not so implausible, and part of me thinks I wouldn't want to go down that line. So I think I'm, I'm still in a dilemma here, but yeah, that's all I can say. There are four questions left, and I think we should take them in two groups of two, and first group would be Seth and the gentleman in the second row, so Seth. Alright, thank you. Um, so I just wanted to make two brief comments. The first one was in relation to Matthias Issa's point before, um, where you say that um, it seems strange that somebody should make himself not liable to be killed because he threatens to um, make the cost of attacking him so high. Right? Um, that the rich can make themselves not liable by making the costs um, of attacking very high. Um, and I don't know, it seems like it's also strange that they should be able to make it morally impermissible. Um, I mean, they can clearly make it irrational for us to, um, for, the, for the poor people to attack them. But the argument by which they, uh, the, the reason that you have for saying that why should they be able to make themselves not liable to attack, I think kind of applies to exactly the same reading, re reasoning, applies to why should they be able to make it morally, morally impermissible to attack them, just by going, we're going to go absolutely apeshit if you attack us, um, <laughs> so now you're not allowed to. So I think the reasoning, I'm not sure why the reasoning would be different though too long. Okay. The other point was that I thought that um, really we should be talking about terrorism and crime here. Um, not for any sort of big, um, big sort of methodological reasons, but just because your argument, you can kind of get out of the, the, the very strong um, revisionist implications of your argument in the context of war by saying, well, it won't be effective and uh, they won't be able to do it and it will cause too much damage. But look, terrorism is a, if, if they can use t terrorist attacks in order to achieve these things, it's far less, those, those, those are far less serious worries. And in the interpersonal case, um, so I'm, I'm going on holiday to India, um, I've got my camera around my neck and all my stuff in my bag. And this, actually, I went down the whole of Africa last year with about £4,000 worth of equipment um, on my back. And yeah, maybe I would, I would go past some people in the street who, um, who might be, their families might be dying as a result of the global economic order. 
Um, and so what I want to know is if your argument has the same implications in those interpersonal cases where either they, either, either they let their kids, they, they rob me, kill me and rob me, or even just rob me, take my camera and sell it, um, or you know, one of their kids is going to die. Um, will your argument have the strong implications? Have, are you prepared to accept strong revisionist implications in those cases where you can't really get out of it by saying it won't be effective or it will be disproportionate? <laughs> Two uh, supportive uh, comments, or more moderate than that goes. They arise from you starting with the case of military aggression. I think um, that those are cases where it's relatively clear what the demand of uh, people who are going to go to war in response to aggression is. Uh, basically, just withdraw the troops. Um, or stop um, whatever this military exercise is. And I think your position would be strengthened um, by just emphasizing that the, um, a parallel kind of demand in the economic case can arise. You just mentioned a couple when you said about the global resources dividend and drugs payments. I think it would be helpful if you anticipated poor people warning the rich um, if you don't estimate um, how much better off you're made by this existing um, unjust world order and how much <coughs> you'd have to contribute under some just reform scheme and then try to contribute that sum to effective poverty relief, then you've acted wrongly and we think that renders you liable to certain forms of aggression. So that, I, I find that a way of defending your view. But the, the other thought is, is it, why not start at a different point? Why not start with a thought that redistributive civil war is clearly permissible? So when um, Castro and his comrades in, went to Cuba and undermined the Batista regime, I don't think that was wrong. But that has all these kind of problems of it's not clear exactly how the regime was killing people. What they were doing was imposing a set of economic institutions which had a relatively high level of absolute deprivation associated with it compared with the set of institutions which were then imposed by Castro. But it seems to me clearly permissible in that case. The civil war was permissible. So you would. So why not say the same thing that there's not sufficient? When we move to the international case, there isn't enough difference so that economic redistribution um, isn't a ground for war. Okay. Uh, I think I can do Andrew's comments very quickly. So. I just thank you for some helpful um, suggestions, so I agree with those. With regard to Seth's comment, uh, well, the, your last point about what can permissibly be done for you when you travel in Africa, I, I think it's, it's a great challenge and I have to think more about it. Uh, but note two things. I could say that if you consider the military aggression scenario, I could have the view that 
there's some kind of civilian immunity. So you've voted for your government, your government participates in this military aggression in, against poor countries. Does that mean when you travel in some of these poor countries, uh, any poor person in that country whose plight has somehow been worsened by military aggression by your country could do whatever he or she wants to do with you? I could hold the view that that's not the case. You, you cannot permissibly be harmed in that way. You're not liable to that sort of harm. Um, and I could say the same about the poverty uh, scenario as well. So I, I think nothing, nothing in my view commits me to saying that it would be permissible to do this. And also I think there's a, your example, there's, there's a further issue. So suppose I aggress uh, against someone and so, so, so I, I try to shoot someone and uh, this person can uh, this person can appropriate a kidney of, of mine to save his own life but that has nothing to do with the threat I'm posing to this person you might hold the view that even though it would be permissible to kill me in defense against my trying to shoot this person it wouldn't at the same time be permissible to take away my kidney to address a, a different threat to life and I suppose one could say the same in the scenario you imagine in, in Africa that uh, you could perhaps be attacked uh, to address the threat you pose through the unjust global structure but that doesn't mean that anything that you can be deprived of that will help poor people can be done to you that would be a, at least a, a possible position um, and with regard to this uh, asymmetry between liability and permissibility, I, that's an issue I have to think more about. It. But the thought was that permissibility depends on harm in a way that liability doesn't. So you're not being wronged if you bring about a situation in which, um, well, you set up a, a causal scenario where a lot of bad things will happen if anybody does something to you. Uh, that cannot affect your rights. Uh, Whereas permissibility relates differently to harm, but I, I need to think more about this. Our last two questions briefly, please, is Gerard and Gerhard. My point's long, so I'm sorry. Oh. Okay. Gerhard, you have the last word. Mine is also long, but I don't need it. Here's a proposal for why Thomas doesn't use the word killing. Uh, it's simply because contribution is much broader. And so contribution captures a lot of way in which harm are mediated to your action. But killing seems to be more specific. So, <coughs> and, but the problem with this is that Thomas starts out having some examples where he tries to tease out our intuitions that there are certain things that, are, that have very stringent duties attached to it, namely like driving over a person or whatever, right? So he used clear-cut cases of doing harm in order to show us how stringent, demanding, constraining these types of killing are, right? Or contributing to harm. And then comes all this theory, which includes a lot of other types of contribution to harm. And so, in, uh, and the problem then is that we don't share the intuition that all these other types of contribution to harm has the same normative characteristics as the killing case. 
but it, it's some kind of cheating going on, I have a feeling. Uh, so that, for example, I mean, <coughs> um, Uwe brings his uh, huge book on Habermas. So I take it and kill Jeff with it. So who killed Jeff? I did, yes, of course I did. Did uh, Uwe kill Jeff? No. Did he contribute? Yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe you can say he contributed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a much broader concept. So, he had, so by doing this, he is able to get a lot of people agreeing that you contribute to global poverty. But we do not kill them. So oh. uh, and it's only the killing, the, the narrow con con uh, instances of contribution, which has all these no has the normative characteristics that it obviously make it permissible for the poor to kill us in self-defense. This broader notion of contribution doesn't necessarily have its uh, same normative characteristics. Uh, okay, it's so late in the day, so I won't have time to answer. Well, no, uh, 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 well, I, I think I, I one issue is what, why doesn't Harvey use the word killing? And I mean that's not really much interest of much interest. Uh, but there's, of course, the interesting issue, the interesting substantive issue, whether the kind, well, whether we are talking about contributing to the death of uh, poor people in a way that is, uh, morally speaking, very different from if we killed them directly. Uh, and I have this uh, domestic example in the paper, of, uh, which is supposed to be a domestic analogy to the incentive problem that in relation to dictators. So suppose that you say to this gunman that if you take over this family farm, this democratically run family farm, uh, we will buy the products that you uh, produce and now the gunman has an incentive to take over the farm and does so and the qu question then is could the people living on this family farm could they defend themselves by killing the person who gives the incentive to the gunman to take over the farm and even if you think that it is somehow less morally wrong to give an incentive to a gunman to take over this family farm than to directly kill some of the members uh, of the family farm rather than give the gunman the incentive to do it. Uh, you might still think that it would be permissible to kill the, the person yeah, who... In that case, Sorry, we really have to wrap up. Transparency, so that they know what they're doing. We're already over time. Okay, okay thanks a lot. Uh, well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.